Chapter 6 of Wanted, Seven Fearless Engineers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Wanted, Seven Fearless Engineers by Warner Van Lorn. Chapter 6. An Engineer's Metal. In the morning the earthmen were called together. They came with smiling faces, which slowly changed to apprehension. There were many suggestions in as many minutes, but none that gave a possibility of accomplishing the impossible. They had to stretch the fuel without visible means of stretching it. The women believed the meeting was a routine course in mechanics and went on enjoying their entertainment. The men explained they were bothered by a knotty question about the machinery to account for their worried concentration. It would have been a terrible handicap if the women discovered the truth. Three licks passed with little change. The fuel had been cut down for a while, but the ship didn't hold its course. Every tube had been fired to hold the direct route for Jupiter. They were constantly cutting into the meagre supply that remained, and had to overcome the deficiency. Due to the slight conservation of fuel, the ship had been operating far below efficiency, and the cold of space began to seep through the walls. This affected the dome people more than the earthmen, and they suffered torture. Any change in temperature was unknown to them. They were chilled at a few degrees below normal heat. Suddenly, during dinner on the third evening, Peter Yarbrough jumped up from the table. The other men fastened eager eyes on his face, while the women watched in amazement. He started to speak, then remembered the women, and sat down quietly. "'I think I've found the answer to our problem. If you will join me in the hold, when we finish eating, I would like to talk it over with you.' Mrs. Yarborough was even more amazed. "'Peter, I'm surprised at you, jumping up from the table so excited, just because you happen to think of the answer to a problem. You ought to be ashamed.' In spite of his worries, Dick lowered his head to hide the smile. If only Peter's wife knew what that problem was, she might not think it so strange. Hardly a man touched his food, and as soon as they were out of earshot of the women, he spoke what was in his mind. The crew heard him at the table, and many of them gathered to listen. For the first time in their lives they were worried. Their lives depended on the earthmen before they even reached their planet. Yarborough hesitated. "'I'm not so sure now that I have found the answer. When it came to me I thought it was simple, but now it seems like a dream. Since knowing that the fuel was low, I've racked my brain for something that might be used. And it had to be on the ship. Every other man was looking for a mechanical answer, and my efforts would be of little use. So I searched for a chemical. Water!' is the only liquid in any quantity. I discarded it so many times that it left a headache, but my search always came back to the same place. It's the only thing we've got. All other liquids are in too small amounts, even if they could be used, and the ship is equipped only for chemical fuel in liquid form. At dinner, when I became so excited, I thought that water would do the trick. Now I don't know. It has oxygen in large amounts, which is vitally needed, but that's the only advantage. 
Even if we dared try, it might injure the tubes. Still, I believe it's the only chance of salvation. It's the one substance on board in any large quantity. What do you think? There wasn't a sound as the minutes passed. Each man searched frantically for the slightest hope, searched for the one chance in a thousand. Dick finally broke the silence. What is your plan, Peter? You must have thought of something. No, that's just the trouble. I thought that water might mix with the fuel, even fire with it. It was only a brainstorm, I'm afraid. After a moment, Dick spoke again. It can't be. Since there's no other substance, we must use water. There has to be a way, and we've got to find it. We might as well use up the water and die of thirst as to drift around in space until we starve to death, or die in the dive at Jupiter. Twice Mrs. Martin came down the ramp to take her husband to bed, but Dick sent her away. The men would stay there until they had found a solution. They had to. The fuel was fast disappearing. Morkwill still sat in the background. The other men from Jupiter had gone to their quarters. He could offer no suggestion, but listened carefully to every word they spoke. Finally, he stood up. I hope that you can forgive me. In the last three licks I have regretted that I ever saw your earth. It were better that my people die than for us to carry people from a happy planet to die in space because of our stupidity. We are no better than children without cares or worries. The men of the crew realized the risk before they left the domes, but it is not your fault. Oh, sit down, you big-headed numbskull. McCarthy's voice boomed out. We don't blame you. We'll find some way to run this crate and get there in one piece. You just made us go to work before we expected. Why? A problem like this is simple on Earth. They'd solve it in no time. You just go to bed and stop worrying. We'll have everything fixed by morning. Morkwill's expression changed slightly, and he almost smiled. He started for the ramp as if taking the words literally, but halfway up he faced the little gathering again. Thank you, John. But I haven't forgotten that you were a famous liar in your hometown, and you haven't lost your ability. Thank you anyway. You're very kind. When McCarthy turned towards the others, he looked rather sheepish, but the forced smiles he received made him feel a lot better. Hours passed while each man told everything he had known about water. At last Dick stood up. We've covered every possible reaction, and many that are seemingly impossible, but have overlooked one very vital point that will either help or hinder greatly. The fuel is subjected to terrific pressure. Naturally, any water that was used would receive the same treatment. In the compression chamber, the pressure rises very fast, which must develop high temperature. The result is that we would not have water, we'd have steam. It would be almost dry steam. Water in the liquid form couldn't discharge oxygen fast enough to affect the fuel, but as steam it might. There's a good chance that steam may even increase the explosive power to a point that we can't even imagine. There's only one way to find out. Try it. Every man here will admit that John has the most practical mechanical brain. 
It will be his job to find a means of injecting the water in the proper amounts. The rest of us can try to find any kinks in the system that he suggests. He knows every piece of equipment on board and can pick whatever is best suited for the purpose. As Dick sat down, John got to his feet. This is one time that I'm ahead of you. While you've been talking, I've been planning a way to do just that. There's an extra firing tube that can hold the pressure we want. Fuel for all the blasts is compressed in one chamber, then discharged through any desired tube. If we put the water under the pressure with a hydraulic system and let it seep into the chamber at a set rate, it might work. Valves can control the steam perfectly and regulate the flow to whatever is desired. The tube will have to be shut off from the fuel tank every few hours to be filled. Preheating the water will develop steam pressure, and it won't draw enough from the hydraulic system to affect the operation of the blasts. What do you say? Shall we try it? It means shutting off all but the emergency tube for several hours, and it will be cold. Within five minutes they were hauling the heavy tube from the storage room. In an hour everything was ready to assemble, and each man knew exactly what work he was to do. A pipeline was run from the water tanks to fill the steam chamber in position. Dick was building an electric heating unit to encase the entire tube, which could be regulated for any desired temperature. Half of the rest period had passed when the chamber was finished, and they were ready to cut an opening in the compression unit. Perspiration poured down the body of every man, but not from the exertion. Each minute that passed ate deeper into the fuel. If water couldn't replace the liquid, they were helpless. They wanted to install the tube while the women were asleep. The ship would be too cold for comfort for a long time after the blasts could be started again. When the heating units in the hull were shut off, it would become freezing inside. Men raced through the ship, stopping at their staterooms on the way. Dick dropped three extra covers over Dolores without disturbing her, then slipped into the heaviest clothing that he owned. Each man was occupied in his own room in the same way. Heavy coats were taken to the men at the controls, while the remainder of the crew were sent to a room with an emergency heating unit. In fifteen minutes they were back at the compression chamber, and at the touch of a button the blasts were silenced from the control room. By the time an opening was cut in the heavy tanks, the cold had begun to creep into the ship. The men worked desperately, and for a while perspiration dampened their clothing. Then the chill crept deeper, and they shivered. Their fingers grew numb, and they had to warm them over a small electric unit, but the opening slowly enlarged beneath their torches. When the tube was fitted into the hole and the metal began to flow around the edges, even the torches seemed to throw little heat. Dick knew his nose was frosted, and warned the others not to touch their nose or ears. According to John's watch, it required three hours to fit the tube in place. When they rang for the power to be turned on, they waited in vain. When minutes passed without reaction, they glanced at each other in consternation. Brown and Martin raced up the ramp while the others waited. Within a few minutes, the tubes began to fire, and warmth slowly drove back the numbing cold. Water pipes had burst, and they hurried to stop the leaks. The main tanks were uninjured as the cold hadn't penetrated the big supplies in storage. Dick suddenly realised that Brown and Martin hadn't returned. When he reached the upper deck, 
All of the women were gathered near the room where the crew had been left. The thermometer was only fifty degrees even then, and they shivered in heavy coats. Every dome man was stretched out on the floor. As Dick stepped within, his heart almost stopped beating, but they were only unconscious. His breath escaped in a long sigh after holding it for almost a minute. Brown and Martin were trying to revive the prone forms. The control men lay beside the others, brought there by the two earthmen. The eyes of first one, then another, slowly opened, and they looked around in amazement. Cold affected them like an anaesthetic, causing complete unconsciousness. When the ship reached normal warmth, they felt as good as ever. It hadn't been cold enough to freeze them in their section, and not a man was injured. When they understood what happened, the men hurried back to the controls. The heavy coils were soon fastened around the tube, and it was filled through a valve on the upper side. A gauge was set to register the pressure of the vapour within. They decided to raise steam pressure enough to equal the compression of the fuel. It required fifteen minutes for the water to reach the boiling point while they nervously held their watches. They could keep track of minutes and hours, although there was no longer day and night in their lives. According to their figures, they now ate dinner at three o'clock in the morning and went to bed in the early afternoon. They held their breath when the steam valve was opened. It moved slowly under Dick's fingers, while a thousand questions raced through every mind. Would it silence the blasts? Would it put them out of commission permanently? Was that moment and the turning of that valve the end of existence for them all? Dick glanced at the gauge on the tube, then jerked the valve shut. The pressure was still far below that of the fuel. He turned the heating unit on full and watched the gauge climb higher. They didn't understand the numerals of the domed cities, but knew the pressure was getting terrifically high. When he opened the valve again, the steam gauge did not rise. It held almost steady. The hiss of escaping steam sounded through the heavy metal faintly. The tubes began to fire spasmodically. Dick bit his lips as he opened the valve a little wider. John McCarthy wiped the sweat from his forehead as every face turned white as chalk. They fired evenly again. The steam was working through the mixture, discharging through the blasts. They felt their bodies sway under the effects of acceleration, and exultance filled them. There was some reaction, at least. Morkwill appeared on the ramp, his face lighted by a smile. What have you done? The ship is travelling at almost twice the speed that it was before. Is it all right? Dick sat down hard. Not a man in the crowd was able to answer. Success had left them speechless. Barrow was the first to recover his voice. Are you sure? Yes, Dick. We took three separate observations, and each showed the same result. Almost double normal speed. Does it mean what you wanted? Can we reach the domes? I hope so, Morquill. If the steam has made that much difference, we'll get there without trouble. The water must be conserved as much as possible, and hope that it lasts. Whether it increases the power of the fuel or simply creates an additional body to drive against is not important. We're getting there. 
End of chapter 6